Well, this morning we return to the Old Testament again. And for those of you who are visitors, this is not the normal thing we're doing. Um, Usually we kind of go through a book verse by verse or passage by passage, but we're taking some time out before we do an exposition of Psalm 145 to address Old Testament issues, critical issues. You know, some of you are out there and maybe, you know, you're in junior high or something and you're thinking, what does this have to do with me? Well, I'll tell you, if your mom and dad don't interpret the Old Testament right, they might stone you if you disobey. So this has important application for everybody in the body. And uh, this is not a light topic. Uh, Three quarters of the Bible are weighed in the balances. And so you need to know how to deal with the Old Testament. Now, so far we have looked at the structure of the Old Testament, the chronology of the Old Testament, and the significance of the Old Testament. We have learned that the Old Testament saints were saved just in the same way as New Testament saints, that is, by grace through faith alone. We also learned that in the Old Testament, the motive for people obeying God was... Love and devotion to the Lord, just like the New Testament. We also learn that God is not the God of wrath in the the Old Testament and the God of grace in the New. He is the God of wrath and grace in both Testaments. As a matter of fact, we saw some of the incredible um, acts of God's grace time and time again while Israel continually rebelled against him in the first five books of the Bible. We also dispelled the myth that the Old Testament has been done away with. Contrary to what many people like to say, we have learned that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable. It is profitable for teaching you and correcting you and training you in righteousness so that you can be adequate and equipped for every good work. It's for your perseverance. It's for your encouragement. It's for your example. It's for your hope. And all of it is to apply to you. Now, it may not apply directly or specifically as it did back then, but all of it applies. And we haven't really got into exactly how that is, but that's what we're going to do this morning. We have learned that when studying the Old Testament, the major issue that needs to be settled is the issue of what is called hermeneutics. In other words, how you study the Bible. Everybody has a hermeneutical system. Now, you may not even know the word. You may not know what your system is, but you have one. Hermeneutics are the principles we use to interpret the scriptures. And everybody, when they come to the Bible, they have some ideas, some preconceived notions, some presuppositions about how they are to understand the text. And even though you can't define yours, you have one. The question is not, you know, me having one and you not having one. We all have a hermeneutical system. The question is, is our hermeneutical system sound? So we have been looking in this series about issues related to hermeneutics or how to study the Bible. And we noted last week four ways we should not approach the Old Testament. The first way is to ignore it by saying it doesn't apply. We have clearly seen in the New Testament that the Old Testament does apply. Secondly, we should not spiritualize the Old Testament. We should not take every passage and phrase and try and turn it into some sort of allegory and look for the anagogical truth or whatever. Third, we should not try to read Jesus into every single verse and line of of the Old Testament scriptures. Yes, he is the theme. Yes, the Christological principle is true. But 
That principle does not give us the right to read things into the text which the original author and the original audience never had in mind. We also learned that we must not use the Old Testament solely for illustration purposes. Now it's okay to use it for illustration purposes. That's fine. But we must not stop there. We must go beyond just using it for illustration and go on to teaching through books just like we do from the New Testament. All of it must be interpreted in light of its historical and grammatical context. All of it must be understood, interpreted. The principles must be taken from it that are timeless and must be applied to our lives and we must obey it. All of it, not just some. Finally, we address the common misconception that we only need to obey those parts of the Old Testament that are repeated in the New This is an interesting statement, and I don't know who first thought of it, but it is very common. And that statement implies that we don't need the Old Testament. If everything that we need is in the New Testament, and the only parts of the Old Testament that we need to pay attention to are the parts repeated in the New, then we don't need the Old. The problem with that is the Old Testament has many things about God and his work and his character and his nature that we must have. And so that is a bad um, axiom or a bad uh, um, philosophy of approaching the Old Testament. So last week, we left you hanging with this question. So how does the Old Testament apply to New Testament believers? And then we just left you there, you know, like one of those cliffhanger serials. And they say, well, you have to come back at the, you know, the beginning of next season. And all summer, you're wondering what happened. You know, what's going to happen? Is the Borg going to get them or not? So this morning, we know this. All the Old Testament is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, for perseverance, encouraging, and hope, and example. All of it will train you and equip you in righteousness. All of it applies. But just how does it apply? We know that we are not under the law of Moses. We know that we aren't Israel living in the land under the Israelite covenant made at Sinai. We know we don't have to do sacrifices. We just know that. But the question remains, what is going to be our approach to the Old Testament? What is our philosophy going to be to deal with the Old Testament? How does the Old Testament all apply to you as a New Testament believer? And that's what we want to answer this morning. And so we are not going to answer all of it as thoroughly as you'd probably like, but we're going to get through most of it. Now, here is our philosophical statement by which you can deal with all of the Old Testament. Here it is. We are to obey everything in the Old Testament except that which is either explicitly or implicitly nullified or done away with or abrogated in the New. In other words, you might say it this way, everything in the Old Testament applies to New Testament believers unless there is some New Testament reason to say something in the Old Testament doesn't apply. That is a far cry different from saying we only have to obey those parts repeated in the New. 
It is a much better statement to say, obey everything except that which is explicitly or implicitly, that is, that which is just flat out nullified in the new or by implication is nullified in the new. So this morning we're going to look at four different things. Here they are. One, we are going to look at unwise divisions that people make of the Old Testament. Two, we were going to look at some things that are clearly nullified that you can understand and see clearly from the scriptures. Three, we are going to look at some things that are implicitly nullified. And four, we will discuss what to do with the rest. So that's what we're going to be, that's going to be our approach this morning. First, let's look at some unwise divisions. You've probably, if you've been a Christian for very long and heard anybody talk about the Old Testament, say something like this. You know, the Old Testament is divided up into three different kinds of law. Civil law, ceremonial law, and moral law. And we only have to obey the moral. Now that is a handy division. It's handy because it just allows you to just deal with things like that. The problem is it doesn't work. It doesn't work. First of all, it doesn't work because it implies that all of the Old Testament is law. When we learned already that only a fraction of the Old Testament is law. We learned that even in the first five books of Moses, the Torah, the law, that There's hardly any law in Genesis, some law in Exodus. Sure, Leviticus is pretty much law, and the first ten chapters of Numbers is law, but the rest of Numbers isn't. And Deuteronomy is not not additional law, it's just a big exposition, a big sermon about the law, how to apply it. So all of those those, um, uh, characteristics or characters of, of the Old Testament being all law that we can divide up into three pieces don't work because the Old Testament isn't all law. Everything else, you know, big chunks of Genesis and Exodus and, and Deuteronomy and, you know, Joshua all the way through Malachi are all grace. They're God. There is God trying to graciously get his people to obey him so he can bless them. His efforts to get them to obey so he can bless them are all acts of grace. And so we see the predominance of grace in the Old Testament, not the predominance of law. Now, the rest of the Old Testament, because it's grace and not law, we, need to, we can't just divide up and say, well, it's law. Because it's not. Now, all the Old Testament is under law. Under the law of Moses. But it is not all law. And, if you think about it this way, even if you did say it was law, think about this. When Jesus was asked by the Jewish leaders what the greatest command was, what did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And what else? Love your neighbor as yourself. And what did he say? On these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. Now, get this. Are we still to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength? Yes. Are we still to love our neighbor as ourselves? Yes. Now that is interesting because that is the foundation of all the law and the prophets. 
Now, it's unwise to break up the Old Testament into moral and civil and ceremonial law because all of God's laws are moral. Even if you were to assume they were all the whole Testament is law, which is not, but even if you were to just talk about the law parts, they aren't, they aren't just some civil and some ceremonial and some moral. Because God is moral and his nature is moral, all of his laws are moral and every word that proceeds out of his mouth is moral. Let's say you read a law, let's say you're in the Old Testament and you, you know, you come across, um, you know, uh, uh, regulations to uh, celebrate the Feast of Booths, okay? That it is a national thing where all Israel is to come together and worship the Lord. Now, you talk to one person and say, okay, well, was that moral or civil or ceremonial? I was like, well, well, that's civil. The whole nation was to do it. The whole nation had to assemble. It was something the whole nation, that was a civil function that everybody had to do. Somebody else says, no, 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 wait a second. That was a ceremonial thing. That was ceremony. They had to do this thing and make these little shacks. I mean, you know, that was ceremonial. Another person saying, no, 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 that's moral. That's, we're talking worship here. We're talking you have to worship God. That is a moral thing. You have to celebrate the mighty deeds of God. That is moral. So what's is right? They're all right. And that's what's wrong about trying to divide it up into civil and moral and ceremonial. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes you just can't do it. Because morality is the underpinnings of everything God has written. That is why Paul says in Romans 7.12, the law is holy and righteous and good. Why? Because it flows from a God who is holy and righteous and good. That's why we must be very careful not to come and impose upon the Old Testament this civil, moral, ceremonial grid and then try to divide everything up and pitch all the parts that don't fit into the categories that we have artificially imposed upon the text. It's fine to discuss the moral law. It's fine to discuss civil aspects of the law. It's fine to discuss ceremonial aspects of the law or even the Old Testament. But we must remember that God never made those clear distinctions. Sometimes it's clear and we can clearly say, you know, this is a moral issue or this is a ceremonial issue or a civil issue. But a lot of times it's not. So it's not a good way to do it. So we will stay away from assuming the Old Testament is somehow divided up into these three categories and that we get to pitch two and keep one. Second thing, let's look at some laws that are clearly nullified. Now what's going to happen here is remember our axiom, our philosophical statement is we are to obey everything in the Old Testament except that which is implicitly or explicitly abrogated or nullified or done away with in the new. So what we're going to do is look at some things that are clearly done away with in the new. I'm going to give you three examples, and this will take care of a lot of the scary things that you're wondering about. So some of you are out there going, we don't have to start offering sacrifices again, do we? No. The first one is the sacrificial system. Turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans 6. I just want to look at a, just, just a sampling of verses here. You're in the Old Testament. You're reading about, you know, offer this, offer that, sacrifice this, sacrifice that, unblemish this, a cow, a lamb, a goat, whatever. Why don't we do that anymore? Well, look at Romans 6.10. 
Speaking of Christ and his sacrifice, Paul says in verse 10, For the death that he died, speaking of Christ, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27. You'll find that. It's still in the New Testament. Page 347. Hebrews seven twenty-seven. Now let's start in verse 26. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, speaking of Christ, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. The author of Hebrews says the priests had to keep offering up sacrifices. Once Jesus came, he offered himself up once for all. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. Again, speaking of how Christ's sacrifice is better than animal sacrifices, the text says, And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Look down at chapter 10, verse 10. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which he which can never take away sins. But he, that is Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time sat down at the right hand of God. Look at verse 14. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And if you were to turn to 1 Peter 3.18, you'd read this. For Christ died for our sins once and for all, the just for the unjust. In order to bring us to God, he was put to death in the body and made him alive in the spirit. What is the common phrase in all of those texts? Once for all. Jesus is the once for all sacrifice. He was perfect, he was God incarnate, and he willingly offered himself as a sacrifice once for all. That is why when you go to the Old Testament and you read about, you know, offering up things to the Lord, different sacrifices, you know, guilt offerings and wave offerings and sin offerings and all those, you know, offerings, peace offerings, you don't have to offer those up anymore. Why? Because they were all to picture the once for all sacrifice in Jesus Christ. And now that he has come, now that he has laid down his life, we don't have to sacrifice anymore because he is the once for all sacrifice. So, you don't have to go get an altar, you don't have to get an unblemished animal, and you don't have to sacrifice it. Praise God. Now, the next thing we want to look at, another example of something that is clearly nullified in the New Testament is festivals and the observance of days and the clean and unclean things. Turn to Romans 14. 
Romans chapter 14. In this text, Paul is discussing Christian liberties, how Christians being in Christ are free to do certain things. But he is regulating those liberties, explaining how you should never use your liberties to cause another person to stumble. But look at verse 5. He says, one person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. Then he goes on to say in the first part of verse 6, he who observes the day observes it for the Lord. The day meaning whatever day he chooses to observe. This text tells us that we don't need to observe any specific day. One man regards one day above another. Another man regards everybody alike, every day alike. You can be convinced in your own mind. You want to worship on Sunday? Fine. Saturday? Fine. Wednesday? Fine. Thursday morning? Fine. Monday afternoon? Fine. Now the scriptures do say you need to worship, that you need to worship corporately and that you need to gather together. That is a non-negotiable. But what isn't a non-negotiable is the day. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It is a matter of personal conviction. Turn to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. And verse 9. This is very interesting. Let me just tell you what's happening here. Paul is writing against a group of people called Judaizers. Now the Judaizers were these people who had gotten all excited about Jesus being the Messiah. But they kind of still wanted to drag along all of the Jewish things with them. The observance of days and festivals and new moons and things like that. Dietary laws, things like that. And so what they were doing is they were coming into the church and saying, Yes, Jesus is the Messiah. Yes, you are saved by grace, but you are kept by works of the Old Testament. And so Paul is writing Galatians to refute this idea that you're saved by grace and somehow kept by works. And look at what he says starting in verse 9 of Galatians 4. But but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which... You desire to be enslaved all over again. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Now there's nothing wrong with celebrating, you know, Thanksgiving or Easter or Christmas. He's not saying don't ever have a holiday. But what he is saying is never think that observing days is going to somehow make you right before God. That it's a matter of obedience. That it will somehow save you. Never go that far. Turn over to Colossians, a couple books to the right. Colossians chapter 2. And guess what? Paul is dealing with the Judaizers here also. We're so thankful for the Judaizers because now we have some great information that we wouldn't have had if Paul hadn't refuted them. Look at Colossians 2, verse 16. Paul is refuting the Judaizers again who are trying to put the people under this bondage that you have to do this or you won't be spiritual. He says, therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food 
or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. What does that tell you? Festivals, new moons, Sabbath days are mere shadows of what is to come. Paul is saying this, listen. All of these regulations were all pointers. They were a shadow of Christ who was to come. Now that we have the substance Christ, why would you go back and cling to a shadow? That's futility. Don't do it. So all of these verses tell us the same thing. We don't have to worship on a specific day. It can be Saturday. It can be Sunday. It can be Wednesday or every day the same. We don't have to keep uh, feasts and festivals and new moons. We don't have to let our land lie fallow every seven years or give back uh, all of our you know, slaves that we've bought in the year of Jubilee. We don't have to do any of that. So you can keep your slaves until they graduate from high school, then send them out. <laughs> now, a third example of something that the Old Testament, and mind you, just because... You don't have to keep the sacrificial system. And just because you don't have to observe festivals and new moons and Sabbath days, that does not mean those portions of Scripture have no application. Remember, all Scripture has application and is profitable. All of it. Now, I keep restating that because I don't want you to think that because we don't have to obey explicitly a certain command, that means we can rip that part out of our Bible. No, we have already learned that all of it applies somehow. Now, we don't know how yet, but we're going to find out. But the third thing that is clearly uh, nullified or abrogated in the New Testament are dietary laws. Turn to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. I'll give you a little background here. What's happening in Acts chapter 10 is this. There is this man, his name's Cornelius, and he has this vision. And in the vision, he is told to go fetch Peter because Peter has a message for him in his house. Now, you have to remember that Paul just was saved in the previous chapter. And Peter was the apostle to the Jews, Paul being the apostle to the Gentiles, but Paul hadn't had his training yet. Now, what's interesting here is Peter has grown up as a Jew. He has only eaten kosher food. He has stayed away from things that were unclean. He would never talk with a Gentile or eat with a Gentile or even go into a Gentile's house if he could help it. He would see those things as defiling Now, what's interesting is Cornelius, this Gentile centurion, has this vision and says, what I want you to do is, is I want you, speaking to his servants, go fetch Peter. And so he dispatches his servants to go fetch Peter. Now, God knows Peter's going to have a problem going to the centurion's house. And so what God does is, is he gives Peter a vision to prepare him for the centurion servants who are going to come and say, come and speak to my master in his household. And this is what we read in Acts chapter 10, verse 9 and following. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. Notice Peter is 
He's, he's hungry, verse 10. He became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. Now, keep this in your mind. The Gentile servants are coming to fetch Peter. God is preparing Peter. Peter's hungry. God lays down this huge tablecloth full of goods. Verse 12. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means... Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked direction for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. And while Peter was reflecting on the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you, but get up. Go downstairs, accompany them without misgiving, for I have sent them myself. And Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one whom you are looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of Jews, was divinely directed by the holy angel to send for you to come to his house And hear a message from you. They didn't know what that message was, but they were going to get it. And so what's neat about this is God wanting to teach Peter that the dietary laws and the things clean and unclean were no longer in effect. So he could go into this Gentile's house, eat dinner, stay there and not worry about it. Gave him this vision of the big tablecloth or sheet and said, go eat all these things like lobster and scallops and shrimp. And blackened catfish. And you're thinking, stop, stop. Yeah, those were things that they couldn't eat in the Old Testament. You know, big thick ham sandwiches with, you know, mm, mm. Yeah, and so you get the picture. All of those things before were unclean. But, but God gave Peter this vision so that Peter could, with clear conscience, go to this Gentile's house, stay there, eat there, and preach the gospel. This tells us that God has made things clean, which before were unclean. Now turn back to Romans 14. We skipped the first few verses of chapter 14, but it addresses this same issue. Chapter 14, verses 1 through 3 of Romans. Paul, again speaking of our liberties, says this. Now accept the one... Who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Now notice this. Notice this. God is saying, don't judge anyone because of food. Look down at verse 
6. He who eats, this is the middle of verse 6, we skip down, we already read the first part. He who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat and gives thanks to God. Paul does go on to say that you can eat anything you want as long as you don't, your eating doesn't cause somebody else to stumble. Never use your liberties in order to harm someone else's faith or their coming to the Lord. But the point that is crystal clear is eat anything you want. He even says, which is exactly opposite of what the Judaizers taught, that if you do eat anything you want, your faith is strong if your conscience doesn't bother you. It is the weak person who thinks certain things should or shouldn't be eaten. And that's what he clearly says there. Now, we also learned from from, uh, Timothy... That there are certain people who want to try and put you under bondage. And what is interesting is, is if somebody comes up to you and they say, you know, you know, you shouldn't be eating this or you shouldn't be drinking that or you shouldn't be doing this or you shouldn't be doing that. And then the scriptures don't say that. What does Paul call that? Those who advocate the abstaining from certain foods or drinks or whatever, Paul calls the doctrines of demons. Because food and what you eat does not make you righteous before God. It is faith in Christ alone that makes you righteous before God. And so I point that out because there are a lot of times in Christian circles today, little forms of Judaizers. Oh, yeah, well, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. Well, why not? Well, it's wrong. How come? Well, you know, when I grew up, It's like, show me in the word. Show me in the word. So, we don't have to offer sacrifices. Great. We don't have to observe certain days, new moons, uh, feasts. We don't have to eat certain foods. And we don't have to worry about things unclean and clean. Because all of that in the New Testament has been clearly nullified. Again, That does not mean that the portions of the Old Testament which address those issues have nothing for us. All scripture applies and is profitable. We just don't have to obey it in the same way. There are still things there for us in every text. So, we have looked at some unwise decisions, some examples of things in the Old Testament that are explicitly nullified in the New Now we want to look at another category, things implicitly nullified in the new. And what I mean by implicit is that the Old Testament doesn't say outright, or the New Testament doesn't say outright that something's done away with, but by implication, surely it is. And the example I want to give to you is the civil portions or structure of the law. Remember that Israel, when they made the covenant with God, entered into what was called a theocracy. And we talked about this a while back. What is a theocracy? A theocracy is when God rules the people directly. Now, that's how God wanted to do it. And if you read Exodus 19 through 24, God wanted to rule them directly. But what happened? Well, the first time God spoke to him, what happened? What did the people say? Don't let this happen anymore. Moses... You speak to God, let him speak to you, and then you tell us, because we do not want him speaking to us anymore. 
That's what they said. It, it just scared them. It terrified them. And so instead of God ruling them directly, which was God's plan, a theocracy, he then went through Moses because he is a gracious God. And so that happened through Moses and Joshua and then the judges and then the judges and the priests. And then finally, we move into a section called the, a system of government called the theocratic monarchy, where God intended to have a king, a godly king, and he would rule through that godly king over the people. Another problem happened. The people wanted a king. But they put a criteria on it. Do you remember what the criteria was? We want a king like the nations. Bummer. They got one. Tall, dark, handsome, and wicked to the core. And so God gave them a king like the nations. To teach them that they needed a king unlike the nations. A man after his own heart. And so God gave them David. Not perfect, but a man characterized by devotion to the Lord. And that is what God's plan was for Israel. He wanted to rule all of Israel with a godly king who would rule in justice over his people. Now when the people, you remember, gave to the Lord's work, they were also giving to the government. And when they gave to the government... They gave to the Lord's work because in that system, the religious system and the um, government system were totally integrated, exactly opposite of what we have today. You know, you can't, you know, pray today. Otherwise, you know, you're breaking the Constitution, supposedly. You know, the schools can't have the Ten Commandments up. They try, they're doing everything they can to have a total separation of church and state. But here, they wanted to have a total integration. It was a total integration. The worship service, services, and the temple, and the priests, and the Levites, all of that was the governmental system. They were totally brought into one. Remember that. And they were brought into one under the covenant made to the Israelites at Sinai. But what happened? The people disobeyed God. Then the curses of the covenant came upon them and they were taken to Babylon. And when Daniel was in Babylon, what did he write about? What were almost all of his prophecies about? Were they about the Israelites? Was it about what the Israelites were going to do? No. It was all about the Gentiles. The, the theme of Daniel could, could very well be said to be the history of the Gentiles. Or the future of the Gentiles. It wasn't history then. Most of it is now. What would happen? He said, well, you have Babylon, the visions of Babylon, and then the Medo-Persian Empire, then the the Empire of Greece, and then Rome, and then that the world would um, meld into this multiple uh, uh, nation confederacy of dominance over the world, and that would happen until the millennial reign of Christ. And what Jesus, or what um, Daniel was teaching is that the Gentiles would be ruling for many, many years. That there would not be a theocracy or a theocratic monarchy. And so the law which was written to, to, to regulate a theocratic monarchy would not have the basis by which to function. 
that was prophesied in Daniel. They, Israel was never again a world power. They were never a dominating power. They were always under oppression. And this is what, when you go to the scriptures, you, you hear Jesus talk about the times of the Gentiles. You've heard that phrase, the times of the Gentiles. Luke 21, 24, speaking of the end of the age, he says, you know, this will happen, this will happen, until the times of the Gentiles are completed. What is he talking about? The times that the Gentiles are dominating. Babylon's gone, Medo-Persian Empire gone, Greece gone, Rome gone, but now we have multiple nations ruling multiple territories over the face of the earth. Do you remember what happened when Jesus told the parable in Matthew 21 of the parable of the vine dressers? Do you remember that one about the guy who the the master he has the vine the vines the vineyard to take care of and he hires some people and they they start doing a lousy job so he sends his servants which represent the prophets and they killed them and then he sent more and they killed them and finally he sent his son and they killed him. And of course the Jews didn't see what was coming but Jesus said so let me ask you, what should be done to those wicked vine dressers? And the Jewish leaders said, he should bring those wretches to a wretched end. And said, you be the men. I mean, he just laid them low. And the text says that they understood he had spoke the parable against them. And the punchline of the whole parable is this. The kingdom of God has been taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit of it. When the Jews finally rejected their Messiah, Jesus said, listen Jews, because you have been lousy vine dressers, because you have killed the prophets and you will kill his son, God is going to set you aside for a time and turn to a different nation, which he will offer his salvation plan to. That is the time of the Gentiles, and that is the time that we are now in. In Romans 11, verse 25, Paul speaks of the same thing. If you remember the context, he talks about the olive tree. And remember he says the the Jews are like the the native branches growing in the tree, but because of their disobedience and their hardness of heart, God has lopped them off for a time. And he says, Gentiles, even though you're foreign to the tree, God has grafted you in by his grace. But don't be proud, because he could just as easily lop you off. He says, and know this, that there will be a time when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, that God will again turn to Israel and graft them back into the natural olive tree. Natural branches with the natural tree that they might flourish. That will happen during the tribulation. And so when you're looking at the Old Testament law and its civil function, you need to keep in mind that the civil regulations were made for a theocratic monarchy But that has been made impossible by their sin and rejection of the Messiah. Now we have entered into the times of the Gentiles. But yet, there will be a time when Jesus will come back and set up a theocratic monarchy. But for now, the Gentiles are ruling And nowhere in the New Testament does it say, you know, you need to lobby to get the Old Testament law back in force. 
Every single instruction in the Old Testament that's directed, uh, that talks about the government tells Christians to do what? Submit. You mean submit to the wicked Roman government? Yes. Communism? Yes. Nero? Yes. Anything? Yes. Why? What does Romans 13 says? say? There is no authority except that which is what? Established by God. And those that exist, exist because of him. If you rebel against the authorities that God has established, you rebel against God even though those authorities are wicked. And that's what the New Testament teaches. And so when you compile all this together, you can clearly say, even though there's no verse that says, you know, civil portions of the law have been nullified, you can clearly say, since there's no instruction to combat the multi-Gentile governmental system, and since obviously we aren't Israel, we aren't in the land, we we aren't under the Israelite covenant, we aren't a theocratic monarchy, it renders those portions of the law just null and void for New Testament believers. We don't have to do that. We don't have to have that system. Now, here's something that's really going to just tweak your brain out. I like this. I like to do this to people. The sacrificial system, the observance of days, months, and feasts, the theocratic monarchy as a governmental system, dietary laws, the clean and the unclean regulations will all be reinstituted again in the millennium. Read it sometime. Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48. When Christ comes back to earth, see, think about this. Jesus is, is hailed as the Messiah. You know, we have, you know, Isaiah 9, 6, one of our favorite Christmas verses. For unto us a child will be born, a son will be given. And then, you know, what happened after that? And the government shall rest upon his shoulders. Has that happened? No. The promised Messiah has never proven to the world and angels and demons that he is not only the king of kings, but he can rule the world in righteousness. So when he comes back the second time, that's exactly what he proves. He comes to Jerusalem. He, there's geographical changes according to Zechariah. And the, the mountain of Jerusalem is lifted up and all the other surrounding mountains are laid low. Jesus begins to rule and reign over all the earth from Jerusalem. He sets up a theocratic monarchy. And... When you read Ezekiel, it says there's a new temple built and they offer sacrifices and do all these other things. And you're saying, but why? Why would they go back to that? Well, the question is, why did they do it in the Old Testament? Did they do it to be saved? No. What did they do it for? They did it in anticipation of Christ's sacrifice, right? All of those sacrifices were pointing ahead to what Christ would do. During the millennium, they are all performed looking back at what Christ has done as Christ is ruling and reigning on earth. And so even though now as New Testament believers during the times of the Gentiles, we don't have to do that, don't think it's the end of it. Because Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48 tells us it is yet to come again.
those sacrifices and days and different things that right now have been set aside will be reinstituted so that there will be a perfect king, a perfect law, and an imperfect observance of it to show that he is the king of kings and he can do it. That it was not unreasonable to expect. But for now, we do not have to observe those things. So don't go out and buy a lamb unblemished. But there's a fourth thing we want to look at. And that is what to do with the rest. So, you aren't getting rid of the Old Testament. You aren't doing sacrifice. Don't have to worry about festivals, new moons, Sabbath days, dietary laws, clean and unclean. And don't have to worry about trying to reinstitute the civil system of the Old Testament. So, what do you do with the rest? Well, here's a quick explanation. And again, this is a quick explanation. And uh, we will deal with this more, but you know, I didn't want to leave you hanging two weeks and then be stoned. But this is, here's three things where you can find application. Remember our philosophical statement, everything in the Old Testament obey, we are to obey except that which is implicitly or explicitly nullified in the new. So how do you find, you as a New Testament believer, find application in the Old Testament. Number one, sometimes you can find direct application. For instance, you're reading the Psalms, it says, worship the Lord. You think to yourself, now, is there anywhere in the New Testament that says not to worship the Lord? No, I can worship the Lord. Bingo, direct application. Maybe you could find some direct application in an example. We talked about the Old Testament being written as an example. You know, you're reading about you know, Ezra and Ezra 7.10. Ezra studied the law of the Lord. He practiced it and taught God's statutes and ordinances in Israel. And that's why the good hand of the Lord was upon him. You ask yourself this. Am I still to study the Bible? Yes. Am I still to practice it? Yes. Am I still to teach it? Yes. See, you can do that. Sometimes you go to a text and there's direct application. It's, there's nothing in the New Testament that says, no, 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 you don't have to do this. And so you can do that. That's fine. Secondly, sometimes you can find application from the situation. You know, let's just say that uh, you're a caretaker and uh, of some big mansion and all of a sudden the guy's wife puts the move on you and you're reading Genesis and you say, hey, I remember what Joseph did. I am out of here. See, that works. It's okay to learn from the same example and to have application in the same circumstance, but it doesn't always happen i mean think about it some of you are out there thinking listen i read the old testament all i know is i'm not an israelite i'm not under the israelite covenant i'm not in palestine or the land that the jews are in i am not in the army and uh i don't battle philistines and i don't even know how to use a sling and there isn't a big giant across the ravine Trying to mock my God. I, how does this apply? You know, I'm in a cubicle. I type in a computer all day. And see, this is a problem that a lot of people have with the Old Testament. Because what a lot of times we like to do is, is when we come to a story in the Old Testament, what we're doing is, is we're looking for a parallel circumstance or a parallel situation. And that is why when we have this parallel circumstance or a parallel situation, sure, it works, but a lot of times we don't. 
And therefore, when we read all these strange things that people did in different times in a different place in a different historical epic, and we read these, they, they mean nothing to us. And they mean nothing to us because we're looking in the wrong spot. The third place you always find application is this, and don't miss this one. Application is always to be found in the person and work of God. There it is. Remember, the Old Testament is the revelation of God, not men. The Old Testament teaches us about God and his nature and who he is and what he has done and what he will do. The Old Testament is not a history book. The Old Testament contains history, but it is a theology book that uses history to teach theology, information about God. This is where there is always application for New Testament believers. For instance, you go up to an Old Testament, here's four, four things you can ask when you go up to an Old Testament text. First of all, what does this text teach me about God? Who God is. What does this text teach me about that? Secondly, ask this. How is God working in this text? And what can I learn about God and how he works from this text? Third, how does God relate to men in this text? What do I learn about God's relationship to sinners like myself? Fourth, how does God want me to relate to him as he did those men to him? What does this text teach me about how men are relate to God? You ask those four questions, you will always find application. Why? Because the God of the Bible is the unchanging God. And because he never changes, the underpinnings, the moral fabric of the Old Testament never changes. You know, you go to Leviticus and you know, you're thinking, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to you know, wash off the entrails and stick them on the altar and sacrifice them to the Lord. That doesn't apply to me. I'm not Israel. I'm not under that system. I'm not, 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 not. But then you ask yourself this. Well, why did God, why did God do that? You know, what does this text tell me about God? It tells me that God is holy and that I am not and that if I'm going to approach God, I need to have a sacrifice. Is that still true? Yes. And then you say, well, notice, what does this text teach me about how God has worked? God has worked out his grace. His grace is reaching out to men in this text to give them a way to approach him. Has God today made a way for you to approach him? You bet. Third, how does this text relate to men specifically? Well, it gives men a specific method by which they can relate to God. Not only is God the God who paves a way, he makes a way. And fourth, how does this text tell us men are to relate to God? They are to do what he says in order to approach him because he is a holy God. So the principles, even under all those you know, entrails and fat off the lobes of the kidneys, are still there, are embedded in the text, and they, quote, still apply. 
they still apply. I mean, think about this. When you're in the Old Testament and you're reading something like the book of Ruth, don't think of this as the story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. It's not. That's not the big picture. The big picture is God. Have you ever wondered why God has this little romance in there about, you know, this, this you know, bitter um, woman who, you know, his husband was disobedient, went to Moab, and then he dies, and she's bitter, and he, she comes back, and the girl says, you know, I want to have your people be my people, my people, your people, and your God, my God. And so the Moabitess comes with, with uh, you know, Naomi, and she's all bitter and all bummed out, and then, you know, she's out threshing, and Boaz falls in love with her, and, you know... What's that doing in there? What about the Battle of Carchemish? I mean, what about, you know, when the Assyrians were attacking the Egyptians and there was a huge overchange in world powers? Why isn't that there? Why isn't it the book of the Battle of Carchemish? Man, that would be interesting, some action. And the girls are going, I I prefer relationships. And instead, you find like one line, I think it's in Jeremiah, on the battle of Carchemish. Why is there all this detail about this relationship? Well, it's not because God wants us to know about Ruth and Boaz. He wants us to know about Ruth and Boaz so we can know about Obed and Obed Jesse and Jesse David, king of Israel, from whose line the Messiah would come. That is what we see about God. God wants us to know the messianic line is continuing and the Messiah is coming. And if you miss that, you miss the whole thrust of the whole book. And so when you go to the Old Testament, what does this tell me about God? How God has worked, how God is related to men, how men are to relate to God, and you will always find application in every single passage. So, that's it. Next week, we will come back and learn a little bit more about law and grace, but let's pray. Father, we thank you that um, we had this time this morning just to look at some very critical issues related to the Old Testament. Father, I thank you that we could study and look at all these scriptures in this way. I pray for each person here that they would be devoted not just to the New Testament, but to all of your word, that we would teach the whole counsel, that we would grow to know and love you as we study all the scriptures, that, Father, we would not cheat ourselves of the blessing of seeing your works throughout all the Bible and seeing your character and your nature and how you've worked and how you've wanted men to relate to you and how you've related to men and your plan for the future. Father, help us all to grow in wisdom and uh, stature and knowledge into the image of Christ as we absorb the whole counsel of your truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.